Okay, so we've had a few days to let the dust settle from the budget, and it seemed a good moment to have a chat with Tom Selby about the announcements. We cover the various changes to pensions, the financial planning and policy development implications, and we also touch on ISAs and make the near obligatory reference to the advice guidance boundary. I hope you enjoy listening. So, I mean, we kind of we kind of knew stuff was coming, right? We'd heavily leaked and trailed and kite flying and so on. So we all knew there was some stuff mm. picking up. I was really interested still at the Treasury's ability to blindside us by... I mean, I don't think anyone even contemplated the idea they were actually going to scrap the lifetime allowance altogether. So, you know, we saw 1.5. Oh, wow, that's generous. 1.8. No, surely we won't go that far. But actually to remove it altogether? I mean, did you have an inkling that was coming? So, uh, interestingly enough, I, I, I didn't have any insider information on that. I didn't, but, but I did send a message on a, on a WhatsApp group to a, to a couple of equally nerdy people suggesting that the lifetime allowance would be scrapped and that he would say, that Jeremy Love would stand, stand up and say something along the lines of, let me be clear, no one will have to pay a lifetime allowance charge akin to George Osborne back in 2014 in relation to annuities. But I think the fact that that was very clearly a joke shows that I had absolutely no inkling that this was coming whatsoever. And I was slightly kicking myself that I wasn't predicting it because it, it, it did, as, as you say, it seemed further than anyone was was expecting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll dig into the lifetime allowance bit in a minute. We'll come back to that. A bit better housekeeping. I thought it was interesting. He mentioned ISIS in passing, but essentially no change. Obviously, there was lots of exciting stuff on pensions, but I, but I still thought it was kind of interesting that the Treasury's just clearly wasn't interested this time round in doing anything on ISIS. And like you guys have focused on this before, as have others. We've got to a place where we could do with a bit of tidying up on the ISA regimes. So there's that, but I also wonder whether they're just now looking at everything through the lens of, will this move the dial in the next general election? And something like tidying up the ISA regime Possibly wouldn't, but anyway, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that before we move on to the pension stuff. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's a fair a fair shout, Tom. Um, I think when you when you consider what was announced on the on the pension stuff, that's clearly with some very specific issues in, in the NHS in mind, and I'm sure we'll we'll get onto that. We agree, and I agree that when you look at ISAs, it has become quite complicated quite a complicated landscape for various reasons it's it's what i think i think it's just what tends to happen in savings taxation over a long period of time when you have different administrations with different agendas and different things they want to promote you start off with something that's quite simple and then as you kind of add incrementally over the years and over over the decades you end up with something that doesn't really look like the thing that you started with and doesn't look like that that clear vision that you had at the start as well it's kind of what what's the what's the saying about the the camel being the horse designed by committee by committee yeah yeah, yeah. yeah some some something along those lines slightly different but you you get the feeling that the the, the, the ISA has become slightly camel-like in over over a period of time and i think there is room for simplification there i suspect you're right that that's not going to necessarily be an immediate priority for a government that's going to be focused almost entirely on on winning winning votes between now and the general election. But something that something that I suspect we'll be hearing hearing more from certainly from the industry over over the coming coming weeks, months, well, and years. And it was notable. I mean, you know, clearly we had to do that on pensions a while ago, and the mm-hmm. Gordon Brown pension simplification stuff that was announced in 20, 2004. Mm-hmm. and 
pushed through in 2006. That was not exciting. That was never going to win any votes. It was the sort of thing a government comfortable with its majority could push through because it was just an important bit of tidying up work. This is this is not a government that's currently comfortable with its majority. So no. it's just not high on the agenda, is it? So, OK, look, quick recap just for, for housekeeping purposes. So the annual allowance goes from 40000 to 60000 the money purchase annual allowance goes from 4000 to 10000 Kudos to you and others that pushed hard on that one. The annual allowance taper also goes from 4000 back to 10000 and the income level at which that kicks in goes from 240000 up to 260000 And the big one, of course, we've all got most excited about is the lifetime allowance charge is just scrapped from April 2023. But cutely, and I think this was a pretty clever move, they're freezing the pension commencement lump sum, the tax-free lump sum, at 25% of the current LTA, which is £268,275. So I think probably we'll focus mainly on the lifetime allowance. But first of all, just the, the money purchase annual allowance and the tapered annual allowance. Was anyone calling for the taper to move? I, I don't know. Did, was that something you'd focused on at all? No. I think in in all uh, to be candid, I think if we we would have seen calling for the for the taper to be increased at, at a time when lots of people are struggling with the cost of living would have looked slightly tone deaf. I think generally we would prefer simplification. So rather than kind of messing around with the tapered level, we'd like to see that scrapped altogether. Clearly, for those who are going to benefit from that, it's going to be a, a little bit of good news, but certainly wasn't something that we'd been focusing on ahead of the budget. Our focus, as you, as you said, have mainly been around the, the money purchase annual allowance. And I think, I think you know, while we'd done some work on that, I think that the, the letter that you put together in concert with other people in, in the industry certainly helped, hopefully, in nudging the Treasury over the line, although it's, it, it felt like it didn't get the, the attention that you would normally expect it to because of that surprise headline announcement. But Somewhat say that like wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, yes, I think we all welcome the fact that the, the MPAA goes from four back to 10, and that takes a lot of people out of the equation. So that's good mm. news. It's still a bit messy. I mean, I'd love, maybe the Treasury just hasn't got the bandwidth for this now, but I'd love to have a further conversation with the Treasury about how we could tidy up the, the money purchase annual allowance rules and move to some sort of, similar, something similar to the tax-free cash recycling rules. Or mm. just, just move it on a bit, but you know, we'll see. Yeah, that that would be a positive. I think that that was that. I think as there's many people have been have been calling for for things in and around that. It's a, it's a clean area of of huge complexity, as you kind of touched on earlier when we were talking about ISIS. The, the question is whether or not the the treasury and the government's in in the mood to think of things that are going to require slightly longer term thinking and potentially a little more legislative change as well. Um, you would hope that given the change has been made to the money purchase annual allowance, there's an acceptance that at least the level was potentially too low. And there was, so there was a risk that lots of people were going to be caught by this who, that, you know, when, when, when the MPA was designed, shouldn't weren't intended to be caught by this. So you've got at least a bit of a win there. And then the question is whether you can take that further forward and look at a wider simplification programme. I'd, I'd, I'd hope over time that we, we can, but whether or not that's an, an immediate priority, I'm, I'm less sure. Yeah, I agreed. The annual allowance. I was a little taken aback when they bumped it from 40 to 60. And I can see that in the context of the NHS pension scheme, mm -hmm. getting rid of the LTA and bumping the annual allowance kind of fixes the NHS problem. So, and you know, Jeremy Hunt, ex-health secretary, clearly was very sensitive to, to all the demands from the doctors and all of that. To me, 
you know, going up to 60,000 on the annual allowance seems quite generous. You know, if you're a couple now with your ISA allowances and your pension, that's up to 160 grand a year. You can be shoveling between you into tax privileged savings vehicles. That that feels like quite a lot. Yeah, I'd agree with that. As, as you say, I think the, the key driver there was very clearly the NHS scheme, as you mentioned, Jeremy Hunt's background as the as the health secretary probably meant that he felt that he needed to be the person who who sorted that problem. Now I'm not I'm not familiar enough with the kind of inner workings of the NHS scheme to know how difficult or not it would have been to come up with a solution that was specific to that scheme. I know that I know that John Ralph and others have, have suggested that they should simply pay those staff more, so give them cash in lieu of pension and, and figure it out that way, which may or may not have been a, an acceptable solution, I think, to the doctors and the BMA. I'm not sure. But gi- given where he was, I suspect it was viewed that this is the, the simplest, quickest way to deal with that problem. And then you can almost think about anything that needs to happen longer term, further down the track. I mean, I think part of the political consideration we have to remember here is that the problems facing the NHS are now they are immediate. Thousands of doctors have already cut their hours or are, are talking about early retirement or have already retired early. And given the strains we're seeing on the health service, that was just something that they needed to, you know, they needed to stem the bleeding. They needed to stop it immediately. That's probably slightly not, not the best metaphor to use, but they, they, they needed to, to, to deal with the problem now. And then if, you know, if, if in future, you know, there, there are ways to provide a specific solution for the NHS scheme that then means that they can come back and review that annual allowance, then maybe that's something a future political party will do. But I mean, certainly from our point of view, our strong preference is that issues around trying to limit the amount of tax that's spent on pensions are focused on that annual allowance structure rather than moving to some new complexity with a new version of the lifetime allowance and just kind of pinging back and forth between having a lifetime allowance and not having a lifetime allowance because that will just be a a complex nightmare and wouldn't really give people the the certainty or the simplicity that they that they need around the taxation of their pensions. Absolutely agree with all of that. And on that point of simplicity, mm. I'm quite glad they didn't come up with. I mean, you, you made the point they could just pay the doctors more, and that yeah. would, that wouldn't have affected the pension system. I am quite glad they didn't come up with some carve out pension specific rule just for the NHS pension mm. scheme that would have added further complexity to the system. So I'm glad they resisted. That temptation. And and on the lifetime allowance, I think quite a lot of people have come to the conclusion with an annual allowance of 40,000 or now 60,000, you don't really need the lifetime allowance anymore. And it's just a a limitation on on ambition and good investment returns. And it's the annual allowance that controls the amount of tax, mostly the amount of tax relief the government gives away in terms of pension savings. So so why have the LTA? So I'm actually pretty pleased they got rid of that. And and I mean, this, I think the big prize from all this and I, and I absolutely understand that you know the focus of a lot of the reaction over the weekend in the papers and you know on, on social media and things like that has been on this, this headline figure that we've got a million pound lifetime allowance that's just been removed altogether it means that the rich are going to get richer you can totally understand from a surface level why that's the thing that lots of people are focusing on and the thing that Labour is focusing on from a political standpoint as well but but to me the the big prize from this is that simplification that we that we get now we we spent a lot of time talking about simplification how complicated pension tax rules are now clearly 
reducing the lifetime allowance to zero and having the intention to remove the lifetime allowance altogether doesn't remove all complexity, mm. but it gets rid of a hell of a lot. It gets rid of a huge amount of complexity when you think of all the protection regimes that exist, some of the some of the challenges that people face in terms of making investment decisions in and around that lifetime allowance and whether they should be taking investment risk or not. The gump that providers send out to people and the stuff that providers have on their websites to explain how pensions taxation works. It's still not as simple as it could be, but if you remove the lifetime allowance from the equation, it gets much, much simpler. And I think that's the when I when I was looking at this and thinking about this, that was the the key consumer benefit I could see from this. Be over and beyond the fact that you know you've got people in DB schemes that are going to be hit by lifetime allowance charges, and it'll make things simpler in terms of tax planning for for wealthier individuals. It's that that simplification of the rules that means that everybody will, to an extent, benefit from those changes. Agree with all of that, yeah. And I think the capping off of the pension commencement lump sum mm. was also a, a pretty clever move because it means that over time, Agreed. yeah, fine, you can have a two million, three million pound pension pot if you're lucky enough to be able to build that up and your investments perform well. But but we'll get the tax back eventually because it'll be taxed as income and we'll, we'll come on to the death benefits in a mm. moment because that I think is still an issue. But that, that limiting off of the tax-free lump sum if you're going to get rid of the LTA absolutely made sense. And I, I kind of, I thought, you know, hats off to the Treasury for kind of, that that package of measures, it kind of makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd say, I'd, I'd, I'd say it makes sense. I don't think I don't think there, were, there was any argument from anyone within the industry that the, the tax free cash entitlement should continue to increase. Now, the, the, I guess the longer that tax free cash entitlement is held, just over two hundred sixty eight grand, the more the treasury will get back, and the more potential issue that will be for for some people. But I, th- I think a, a, a tax free cash entitlement of two hundred sixty eight grand feels pretty generous. It feels like a fairly simple trade-off that the Treasury has made there. And as you say, it, it just means that the, the overall costs of that policy aren't just going to balloon over time. Actually, they'll start to bring money back in the more time you assume that the lifetime allowance would have kept going up and that tax-free cash entitlement would have kept going up as well. So yeah, it felt, felt like a, a sensible, pragmatic set of proposals from the, from the Treasury. And I think something that, that most people within the industry certainly would, would, would happily accept. Which is fine up until, well, I get there's two, two flies in the ointment here. So mm. one is Labour's response. And I think Mark Polson, my boss, kind of referenced a, an old Steve B line of, um, and this is true in other areas as well. With pensions, you can either have fairness or simplicity, but you can't have both. And yeah. I thought it was that, that was a good moment to play that line because the government clearly looked at this from a simplicity end of the telescope. Labour looked at it from a fairness end of the telescope. And Labour's knee-jerk reaction to this was one of, well, we're not going to let that stand. And I, you know, I, I get that from their point of view. It doesn't look fair. It, I mean, in many ways, it is a bung to the wealthy, and that's what you know what what's going on there. But by saying, as Rachel Reeves did very quickly after the budget, well, we'll reverse that. That creates a whole load of problems, doesn't it? And and I think so. So that's one fly in the ointment, and the other one is the inheritance rules. We'll come on to that. But 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 I mean, your thoughts around the Labour position on this? Yeah. So that that first that first fly in the ointment wouldn't be ideal. If, to put it mildly, if, if that were Labour's approach, I think that there's a fairness angle there and there's also a political opportunism angle there from, from Labour as well. So I, I saw Wes Streeting quoted in The Guardian in September proposing something that looked very, very similar to me to scrapping the lifetime allowance and accepting that some people would view that as 
overly benefiting the wealthy because that would help solve the problem of, of senior doctors and NHS staff retiring early. So it's 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 a policy that Labour has shown some sympathy to in the not too distant past, and perhaps now there you know there, there is clearly a political opportunity there for them to for, for, for Labour to attack the Conservatives, and yet that's what opposition parties are there to to do. I think that. The plea that I would make to, to to Labour would be around the when this all first happened and our, and and you know you, you're getting the inevitable questions coming in from from journalists and others around what this what this means for people. My my, my assumption was that the questions that we would get are around the inheritance tax issue and then around you know how does this work for people what are the implications for people actually the first questions that i got and the most common question i've had from journalists has been around what will labor do to unpick this and what can people do to protect their money when labor comes in and reintroduces some version of the lifetime allowance which to me kind of crystallises part of the problem that we've had with pensions taxation since, well, since 2006, frankly, and certainly since 2010. If you're, if you're someone who's contributing money to a pension, potentially for decades, then you're already having to make quite a big commitment with your money. You're already having to deal with quite a lot of complexity as well. And then you've got this position where people are trying to second guess what a politician might do at a general election if they win that election and if what they say in the build to that election or what they're saying post-budget is what they're going to implement and then trying to make pensions and investment decisions based on all of that incomplete or unknown information. It just adds to this kind of wash of uncertainty that people have to deal with when they're deciding whether or not saving for retirement is is worth it. And so you have the risk of people making decisions or trying to make decisions based on a second guess of what a Labour government might do, which clearly isn't a particularly good idea because nobody really knows. Or you have people just throwing up their hands and giving up altogether and just saying, this is all too complicated, there's too much unknowns, I'll just shove money in a bank account rather than trusting pensions because it seems like the rules change every five minutes. And actually, when you look at the response from Labour, and I very much understand why Labour has responded in the way that it has, but if their intention was to bring back another version of the lifetime allowance, it just adds to that pot of uncertainty and would, I mean, who knows how they would do it, but it would clearly reintroduce complexity as well. And, you know, whether you're going to have, I mean, I, I, my brain can't even deal with the possibility of bringing back another version of a protection regime or something like that. I think it'll just explode. But it's it's one of the reasons why we need to get to some, to some sort of cross-party agreement on how all of this stuff should work and how, you know, how pension taxation should be controlled within defined contribution pension schemes. Because if we could get to an agreement around that, and if that agreement was around the annual allowance, as which, you know, as you say, essentially makes the lifetime allowance redundant in most circumstances, then you can move away from some of this uncertainty. You just say, okay, you know, if Labour comes in, they think it's too generous, they'll turn the notch down. The Conservatives come in and they think that it's not generous enough, they can turn the annual allowance up. And that's all a lot simpler and you move away from that really huge uncertainty that you get when you're capping lifetime limits. Yeah, agree with all of that. And there is always that tension between consistency and, mm. you know, we saw it with auto-enrolment, the big success of, of the, the 
a foundation stone of the success of auto enrolment was getting that cross-party consensus. And it took the Turner Commission to do that, but they did it. And the Labour government was able to go to the Conservative opposition and say, will you get on board with this? And the Conservatives said yes. And that gave employers the certainty that they could they could lean into it. And so it all worked. And so, so, so there's that. I agree with you. But you always also get that tension of conflicting political ideologies. Um, yes. So, so I absolutely agree with you. You need to find consensus, at least around the levers that can be pulled. Yes. And then different parties can argue in favour of different, you know, pulling levers in different directions. I do wonder whether we're going to circle back round to tax relief on, mm. on the back of all of this, because that still feels like quite unfinished business. You know, it's it's a very messy box to open. I mean, maybe we could just agree to pull the annual allowance lever back and forth, and that would be one solution. I think once you start getting into the realms of fairness and distribution, mm. then maybe the, the rates of tax relief, or indeed the incentives to save, because it doesn't actually have to be tax relief, could yeah. perhaps come in, back into play. I mean, that's that's a really complicated one to unpick, isn't it? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. As, as we mentioned a couple of times, we've got a general election coming up in the not-too-distant future. Manifestos will, I'm sure, be being thought about and will be drawn up in, in the next, uh, you know, six to 12 months if Labour decides that it wants to make fairness of pensions taxation a big thing to go on and clearly you know they've 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 made it a big thing to go on in the wake of of the budget then it it wouldn't massively surprise me if they start to look at you know things like flat rates of pension tax relief and and all and and all those kind of ideas it's uh it's something that labor's looked at and suggested it would support before i think i think the the plea would be if, if if labor or anyone else is going to go down that road don't just say we think there should be a flat rate of pension tax relief and have nothing in there about how this would work what the controls would be um how it would be applied to define benefit schemes which remains you know the big intractable problem that even meant that the institute for fiscal studies they've got huge collective brains decided that that just wasn't an idea that was worth pushing through and instead we should just reform the system and simplify. I think as as long as Labour's approaching this from a point of view of trying to encourage more people to save for retirement and keep things simple, then I think everyone would be on board with having, you know, a sensible conversation about the future of pension pension tax incentives. I think the, the danger in all this is that ideas are pushed forward purely to, you know, gain headlines and popularity without any real thought of the practical impacts or the impacts that those changes might have on different sectors. I mean, the, the, you know, we look at what's happened with the NHS in relation to the lifetime allowance and the annual allowance. And actually, part of the problem there is that you've had cuts being made by a Treasury working essentially in a silo without considering the fact that this was going to heap pressure on the NHS, which, you know, no one saw a pandemic coming. But when the pandemic happened, it was clear that we were going to need more senior doctors and we have these pension tax allowances that create a disincentive for those people to work. But there was no linking up between the departments, as far as I could tell, to kind of acknowledge quick enough the fact that those those problems were, were going to be created as a result of, of the tax system. So I guess it's just a plea to, to think carefully about the consequences of, of any intervention that, that they might push forward. Well, that sounds very reasonable. <laughs> so it won't happen. No chance. <laughs> so we've, we've referenced the IHT stuff a couple mm. of times. Just, just briefly stay on that because... The thing that struck me through all of this is, you know, once I had time to sort of sit down and digest it, was, okay, so there's no cap on the amount you can build up in your pension pot. 
I was never happy with what George Osborne announced in the autumn of 2014 ahead of the pension freedoms that if you, if you die before 75, your pot gets passed on tax-free. If you die after 75, there will mm. be income tax deducted, but only at the point that it's drawn out by the beneficiaries. And you know, if you're cute about this and you pass that pension pot on to your grandchildren and they've got a financial advisor leaning over their shoulder saying, right, just draw out your, your, your personal allowance every year. You know, you've created holes in the system. So we're giving tax relief to get people to build up pension pots. And we're then actually really incentivizing them to draw on their pension pots last, to keep that pot of money preserved because it's got beneficial treatment relative to inheritance tax. And why, why would you do that? Why, From a policy point of view, why yeah. would you create that system that allows that? So I think you know, I wonder whether Labour's response to the lifetime allowance should perhaps look across at the inheritance tax rules. Mm -hmm. And I also wonder whether the present government actually can stay where it is on all of that, because it, it looks like they've, they've created quite a big loophole there. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting. You, met, you mentioned in, in relation to increasing the tapered annual allowance limit and whether or not anyone was calling for that. I, 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 I certainly don't recall in 2014 anybody saying that they wanted the government to create a pensions regime where people could potentially pass on money tax-free to their to their beneficiaries if they happened to die before age age seventy five. So I think you know some, sometimes these ideas come up through you know consultation with with industry and people thinking that there's a problem to be solved, and sometimes it's a, a you know a politician or a group of politicians and their and their civil servants deciding that actually this is something that might be popular within their party perhaps while they're they're dealing with some quite tricky Brexit negotiations or something like that I don't know but it's it, 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 you know that I think you're right that clearly the the IHT rules around pensions are generous and have been made more appealing as a result of re removing the lifetime allowance I think they were already generous before that anyway so it wouldn't shock me if the either the current government or the Labour government a future Labour government or both we're looking at the tax treatment of pensions on on death. I think the big challenge with that, as is always going to be the case with anything that changes the benefits associated with pensions while they're alive, is going to be managing that transition from one system to to another. And it's something that I think well, I think we um, we kind of touched on and debated on on Twitter. And it's something that the IFS has kind of tried to in a re in a really good way. I think actually, I think the work that the IFS has done around pensions taxation has really added to to the to the debate. That it's that challenge of how do you of the extent to which you acknowledge the contributions that people have made within the current system and the benefits that are associated to, associated with those in a reform to any new system. So, for example, applying IHT on death, the extent to which you do that so that all oh, everything's honoured or you you know have a transition period where some things are honoured or you just have a cliff edge and you say nothing's honoured at all. That could potentially become even trickier in relation to death benefits if you have you know, people making significant contributions between now and, you know, say the next general election because the lifetime announcer has been removed and they, they perhaps are, are fearful of what might happen on, on IHT. So there'd be some some challenging questions, I think, in, in moving from one system to another. But I, I suspect that's an area, as you say, that, that politicians are going to be looking at a little bit harder over the next 12 months or so. Yeah, agree with all of that. And I think... You know, for all that we've just acknowledged all the kind of enduring uncertainties mm. around some of these rules, I guess my takeaway from all of this was mostly, look, just just don't worry about the short term. I mean, basically, the simple message is just keep saving for retirement, right? Yeah. Just don't worry too much about the details in the short term. But 
I mean, you highlighted to me an interesting point around mm. the advice, guidance, boundary and issues for providers. And I was talking to a provider on Friday who pointed out to me that already at the end of last week, they had had to intervene because a customer was about to vest a three million pound pension pot yeah. and was about to pay several hundred thousand pounds in lifetime allowance tax charge. Mm -hmm. And they just leaned over and said, we're not letting that go through. Right. Yeah. Now, arguably they were they were kind of going beyond their remit slightly yeah. in doing that. But you know, to hell with it. Consumer duty, I know it's not here yet, but that looks like consumer duty to me. It's like yes. you can't let that happen given that just living another month or less will make such a vast difference to the tax charge on that. So there are some issues around that, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's an interest. Obviously, the advice guidance debate generally is is one that's been going on for a while and is quite interesting. And I think as that that situation you out, outlined there is quite an, an interesting kind of one in relation to what, what what a provider may or may not say. Now, I think I suspect that most providers will be you know looking at something specific like this where you know if somebody decides to crystallize their pension at the moment then and they're and they're above the lifetime allowance then they'll pay a whacking great tax charge whereas clearly if they if they wait until the 6th of april they won't pay a tax charge it's so blindingly obvious that they shouldn't make that decision unless there's some extreme thing off in the, in the on the side that actually go i think that communication is probably a little easier to do without fearing that you're going on to the the wrong side of the advice guidance boundary. Now, the, there are still challenges around that. You know, it still is a it's a personal communication. The person who you're speaking to may feel like they've received financial advice. So, I think in in ordinary circumstances, if it wasn't so obvious, that would be potentially a challenge. Hazardous, but yeah, yeah. hazardous, yeah. But I think that that I guess the the balance of risks when you're considering a, somebody who potentially is going to pay, you know, a twenty five percent or fifty five percent tax charge on that money versus waiting for, what is it, three weeks now in order to make that decision and not paying that tax charge. I think you, without telling them that they should do that, you can you know, just spell that out to people. And I think most sensible people will will agree that that should be on the right side of the, the advice guidance boundary. But I think, I think the, even, the, even the fact that you have to have that conversation shows that there's potentially a bit of a problem there and a, a way in which the you know, the, the existing advice guidance rules don't necessarily work perfectly with the idea of the consumer duty because firms are having to, even if just for a moment, second guess whether or not telling people something that's so obviously in their interest like that might breach the existing rules. I think that's clearly not ideal. And I think just just kind of adds to the mix in in, in a debate that I think is going to carry on you know, for certainly for the rest of rest of this year and possibly beyond. Yeah, I agree with that. But to your earlier point, luckily the FCA only employs sensible people. So hey, that's true. <laughs> You're lucky there. So and I, I loved your 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 other observation on all this, which is just the really important bit of financial planning is just to not die before the sixth of April. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, incredibly important. I think I think I said be, be very careful if you're if you're close to the lifetime allowance and you're under you're under 75 and you're crossing the road. You should be careful doing that anyway. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a tricky a tricky period of time. I mean, I don't know what you do if you happen to have a seventy fifth birthday between now and the sixth of April. I think that's tough luck from what I can see. Anyway, but you're you're always going to have 
those challenges when you move from one system to another. There's going to be people who just happen to be unlucky and you know, you can't get much more unlucky than than leaving this mortal coil. But yeah, having a 75th birthday or, or dying before 6th of April is going to be doubly unfortunate for, for those who, who hit those hit those points. Well, on that cheerful note, Tom, <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much for talking through all that with me. It's really good to talk to you again. Cheers. Thanks, Tom. So there we are. It feels like this is the start of something as much as it is the resolution of outstanding business. I don't see how either the government or the Labour Party can stand still here. And I think we're entering a new phase of pensions policy development, both going into and beyond the next general election. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, then do please like, subscribe and leave a favourable review. The sound engineer is Ross Burns.